right, good morning again. Uh, this summer, we are going through a series called Work Zone, in which we are talking about what we do when we gather on a Sunday morning. Why do we work so hard to make sure that we gather on a weekly basis, and why do the things that we do there matter? And what we found in Scripture is that God has promised when his people gather in his name that he will be present there, and that the things that God's people do in his presence, in his name, take on special significance, special power. And so the vision that we're taking for this, the regular gathering of God's people is that it is an opportunity not simply to receive or simply to give, but to do work. That, our, that we as individuals, we as a congregation, and our community can be transformed by the things that happen on a Sunday morning. And so what we've been doing throughout the series is going through each item in our order of service. We talked about why we worship. We talked about why we sing. We talked about why we confess. We went a little bit out of order and did why we, why we do the prayers of the church. And then we, last week we talked about communion. So this week we are talking about the next step in our service, which is the collection. Or as, we, as it's often called, tithes and offerings. So we're talking about money. Anybody uncomfortable yet? I've been a preacher for four years, and I have never preached on giving. This will be my first go at it. And money is always a touchy subject, especially in churches. Uh, a lot of people have been legitimately hurt by churches' approaches to money and their, their attitudes towards money. Um, just recently, I don't know if you heard this last week, there was a pastor who got... You, know, you have to be really careful as a pastor... Okay, the reason you have to be careful as a pastor is because what you do has power and it can really bless people or really hurt people. But now there's another reason, because everything you do is recorded. And there was a pastor, I forget where, who, uh, in a, like a live broadcast, berated his church because they hadn't bought him the luxury watch that he wanted. That he, he, It was even on sale, and they didn't buy him this luxury watch that they knew he wanted. And... I will confess I don't know any of the circumstances. He apologized, and the apology seems very sincere. I'm not passing judgment on that, simply to say it got a lot of press. Because how churches and pastors talk about money is a big deal. There are, a lot of times people will feel like churches are all about money, or that they're, you know, and, and churches have done bad things uh, in that regard in the past. And so I want to be, uh, I want to be very careful to be very biblical, because it's easy and this may be why it's been four years and I haven't preached on money. It's easy to say, well, then we won't talk about it. But the Bible actually talks a lot about money. Uh, money is a very important part of, how we, uh, of our discipleship, of how we place our value and how we are used by God. And so it is an important thing to talk about. But today, as I prepared for this sermon, I was coming at it from a different perspective than a usual, um, than a usual giving sermon, because I'm not just talking about giving and why giving's good and, and where it all comes from. I'm specifically talking about why do we give as part of our worship service. When COVID hit, we stopped passing the plate, and we haven't brought it back, we, but we did place these boxes in the sanctuary so that you can give in the sanctuary as part of our worship service, and we continue to talk about it every Sunday. So we continue to make it part of our regular worship, and the question is, Why? Money is usually something that we prefer to keep secret, to handle privately. So why would we make it something we talk about publicly and address and, and do things with in a public setting? 
as I approach it that way, it caused me, as I studied, to, to have some interesting realizations about giving and the way the New Testament, the way the Bible actually talks about giving that's different than what I was expecting. And so just like last week, last week we talked about communion, and I offered a very different perspective than how we typically do that, and it wasn't at all meant to be, and I don't know that anybody took it this way, as a criticism of how we've done it, just as another way that we can do it, and another way that we can view it. And I want to do the same thing today. I want to offer a different perspective on giving in the church. And it starts with this realization, that usually when we talk about giving, we end up in the Old Testament. When we talk about giving in church, we end up in the Old Testament. We even use Old Testament words like tithing and offering. We usually call it tithes and offering. Or offering. We even have a name for the song you play while you collect the plate. It's called the offertory. And those are words that come from the Old Testament. Now, there's nothing wrong with, with us. I mean, we, we should know the Old Testament. We should read it and be influenced by it. Last week, we spent a lot of time in the Old Testament to help us understand uh, communion. But you'll notice that each time we went into the Old Testament to talk about communion, it was because there was a touch point in the New Testament where Jesus or Paul said that communion connects with that thing. Let me ask you, how many times do you think the New Testament mentions tithing? Zero. There is not a single point in the New Testament when it brings up the concept of tithing into the church. Now here's a more challenging one. How many times do you think the Bible talks about, uh, the New Testament talks about offering money to God? Now I'm being very specific with my wording there. How many times do you think it talks about offering money to God? I could not find a single place. Now, it does talk about the way we use money as an offering to God. But the Bible doesn't talk, the New Testament, as far as I can tell, does not talk about giving money to God as an offering. We'll often think of it that way, like I'm offering my money to God. The New Testament does not bring those concepts up. The New Testament actually has a different view of giving, and it has different roots from what I'm finding in Scripture. And so I'm using a different word to talk about it. Today we're calling it the collection because that's a word that I find in the New Testament. And not that tithes, the word tithe or offering is bad for us to use, but just to give us a different perspective. And I got this word from Paul talking to the Corinthians about their regular practice of giving. He says this, Now about the collection for the Lord's people, on the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Now, Paul is in the process of collecting money from the churches in uh, Europe to bring to Jerusalem to help the poor in Jerusalem. There's something going on in Jerusalem. We're not sure exactly what it is, but um, there's something going on in Jerusalem, and, and they're in need of help. And so Paul is traveling around the churches. So he tells them, when you gather, as part of your gathering, just bring it to church with you, and that way it'll be there when I come by to, to pick it up. So this is where Paul is talking about the gathering of money being part of their regular worship service. And he calls it the collection. But notice, he calls it the collection for who? For the Lord's people. Now, that's partly because, the, the immediate reason for that is because it's for people in Jerusalem. 
But what we'll find going through the New Testament is that when the Bible talks about collecting money, it's always for God's people rather than for God. Now, give me some room to run here because I promise I'll, I will address if you have concerns about what I'm saying here. There's an important distinction here that I'm going to develop. But what Scripture tells us is that the collection is the regular gathering of resources for God's people, for the needs of God's people and for the work of God's people. Now, the starting point for the Christian practice of giving, the Christian practice of the collection, is not in the temple practices. It's actually in the first church. It starts in the church in Jerusalem. We've looked at this passage a couple of times now. It says, they devoted themselves to the very first church in Jerusalem just in the aftermath of, of um, Pentecost. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. That is the beginning of the collection. And we're going to be looking at some passages that, have, especially in the West and in America, have been very tricky to look at for about the past hundred years. About gathering, holding things in common, and, and sharing wealth. But this is a regular practice of the first century church, and this was where the collection began. And notice, it's not a rule. It's not, it doesn't say that they were following the tithe. It doesn't say they were doing the laws of Moses. It says that they shared. This was a natural expression of their life as a community. It made sense to them as they got together as the people of God and lived out the teachings of Jesus that they would share their resources. And so later when Paul is teaching about what this practice looks like, he says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a joyful giver. Moses never said anything like that. When Moses gave the law, he didn't say, you should give however much you feel like, and just don't give it because you're compelled to, give it because you're joyful. Moses said, give 10%. And every once in a while, you're going to have to give another 10%. It was a tithe, right? That's the tithe. You give 10%. Paul is talking about this practice that the church had of sharing their resources that arise naturally out of living out the gospel. And so the collection was the generous, joyful sharing of resources among God's people. That's where it came from. As far as, we knew, as far as we know, the Jewish Christians at this time probably continued to tithe to the temple or to the synagogue. It was a while before the, the Christians really ended up separating from the Jewish life in Jerusalem and in Judea because they considered themselves to be Jews who, had, who were following the Messiah that they'd all been waiting for. So this is something different. It's rooted in generosity, but it's not simply being generous. Because if a person, if I'm a first century Christian and I'm walking through Jerusalem and I see someone, a beggar, and I give them money, that's generosity. But it's not the collection. It's good. It's a different discipline than the collection because the collection is the giving of resources to and through the church. 
specifically when they went through this process of sharing their resources and selling land and giving the money to the people who need it, they did it through the church. It says from time to time, uh, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So they brought it to the apostles. They brought it to the church. So the collection is that part of our generosity that happens through the church, through the congregation. It's what you bring to the church, to the congregation, for the congregation to distribute for the needs and the mission of the church and the people in it, right? So that's specifically what the collection is. Now, why do we participate in the collection? Why do we do the collection during the gathering? Why, is, why do we make it this thing that's part of our public gathering? Especially when Jesus said, uh, talked about you know, keeping your giving private. Jesus advised, like, don't trumpet what you give. Kind of, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And yet we make it part of our public gathering. Why is that? Well, the first reason is because the collection is part of how we share life together. It's rooted in the fact that we are a community. We are sharing because we are a community, we are a community who loves each other. And so it's the fact that we gather together that generates the need and the opportunity for giving to the collection. In Acts chapter 4, we get another description of this practice that the early church had, and it says, it starts with the statement that all believers were one in heart and mind. They were united emotionally, and they, they were united in their vision and in their mission. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. This was the practice of the early church. Now, this can start to make us really nervous because we often will start to hear words in our minds as we read this like commune or communal living or even communism. Uh, There are traditions in the church who have sought to live this out by living on communes and by not having uh, common property or not having much, I mean, not having private property or not having much private property. And some of those groups can be very, very, um, can be very, very devout, very giving, generous, loving people. But that's a lot to ask of people. We start to get a little bit nervous. And also, over the past hundred years, we've often defaulted to, we, we tend to resist anything that leads us in that direction because of our cultural and political battle with communism. And, and our first association is with compulsive redistribution of wealth. Right, like the government's going to come in, take everybody's wealth, and redistribute it. And we're afraid of that, legitimately. And so we tend to not really talk about this passage very much. But I'll tell you that that is definitely not what the early church practiced. They did not practice communism or anything like They didn't abolish private property. Notice it says from time to time they would sell property as the need arises. Right? So it doesn't mean they redistributed all their wealth. They, it means that the people who had land were willing to use it to sell it in order to meet the needs of the church. 
And they didn't abolish the concept of private property. There's this very telling story that happens in chapter 5 where uh, these two people, this couple named Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a, a, a piece of land and they give half the money to the church, but they lie and claim that it was all the money from the field. And the consequences are actually pretty extreme for this. Uh, God strikes them dead. But the problem wasn't that they didn't give all the money. The problem wasn't that they had their own field. The problem was that they lied. Peter says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. The land was theirs. And after they sold the land, the money was theirs. They, and it was their choice of how to share it or whether to share it. It was the fact that they lied about it that was wrong. So we are not talking here about redistribu like forcible redistribution of wealth or the abolishment of personal property or anything like that. We're talking about something that is much, much harder than that. We're talking about sharing your private property willingly. That's harder. Because one of the things that we recognize as we look at the way the Bible talks about wealth is that the collection is how we use our wealth for its proper purpose. That the collection and things like the collection are actually why you have wealth. See, here's the problem, one of the problems that I have with tithing, uh, the concept of tithing and the idea that you're giving back to God. So the mentality that we usually use and I usually use is God gives me all of my wealth, I give him back 10% of it, and then the 90% is mine. That's not how it works. God gave you all of your money, right? But who do you belong to? You belong to God, right? So who do you think your money belongs to? That's why you can't give back to God because God didn't lose control of the money when he gave it to you. All of God's money is in his people's bank accounts. That's where he invests, right? It's in, it's in the hands of his people. And so this idea that I've been given my money and I'm going to give him back 10% and then use 100, the 90 for what I want, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that you and your money belong to him and that everything you have is because God wants you to have it for his purposes. So, for instance, when Paul is talking to the Corinthians about giving, he says, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having what you need, you will abound in every good work. Now notice the logic there because it's different from the Old Testament passage that we often use. And I'm not saying it's wrong to use this passage. I just want to make a point about we use this passage in, in one of the Old Testament prophets that says people weren't tithing. So he says, tithe and test me on this. See if I don't give you, you know, make, give you abundance. And the idea is if you practice tithing, you will get abundance. Sometimes we use it that way. But notice the logic that Paul is using here. He's saying, if you have abundance, that is forgiving. See what he's saying? God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So you have what you need, and what is the rest for? Abounding in every good work. If God is giving you more than you need, which would be what I would say wealth, Okay? If, you are, if you are below the poverty line, I wouldn't say you have wealth. I would say that you have stuff to live on. But the wealth is that above and beyond. If you have above and beyond, if God has given you more than he's given other people, he has plans for that too. 
He goes on to say, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. He's talking about their, their, their money, their resources as seeds that can grow into righteousness. He says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Why does God give us more than we need? So we can, because he wants us to use every penny according to his purposes. Every dime you have is meant to be used according to his purposes, and meeting your needs is one of his purposes. God wants you to be able to feed yourself and clothe yourself and and have a home for your family and those kinds of things. That is according to God's will. So everything you use is according to his designs. And if he's given you extra, that's meant to be used according to his will as well. Now, I'm not saying that you're supposed to measure the poverty line and give the rest to the church or give the rest to... I'm not... The point is not to set lines. The point is to say that God, that, that every dime you have is between you and God, how you're going to use it, right? And that the collection is part of that realization that as we, that the, we, the collection is an opportunity for you to live out that, the purposes that God gave you your wealth for. And we do it here in the worship service especially because the collection is an offering that we make to please God. And so in God's presence is a, spe- is a specially good time to make an offering that will please God. But notice what I'm saying here when I call it an offering. It, sa- it is an offering that we make not to God, but to please God. And here's what I mean. This is how the New Testament talks about it. In Philippians, Paul, uh, Philippians is a church, basically the to put it in modern terms, the missions team of uh, Philippian Christian Church had Paul as one of their missionaries they were supporting, right? He was on their missionary board. Paul was in jail, and they were supporting him. And he was in prison, and so they sent him money to help support him. Because in prison, you actually, they didn't, the prison wardens didn't feed you. Someone had to bring you food. So he says, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. The money they gave is an offering to God, but who did they give the money to? To Paul. Paul probably spent it on food, maybe a coat to keep him warm, things like that, right? In Hebrews it says, Do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. We give not because that's the portion that goes to God and the rest stays with me, It's all God's. It's all God never lost control of it. We give because God is pleased when we take what he's given us and use it for the work of the gospel and for the for helping others. It is obedience to it is an obedience to God that pleases him. You see the difference in mentality? This isn't God's cut. This is God has given us this money and it pleases him when we use it for his purposes. And so part of it, we, sit, we do it as we gather in God's presence as a way to worship him. We obey him in his presence, and we, we bring it here to show that we are doing this out of obedience to him and because it's what he wants from us. And that is incredibly powerful. Because now we're going to pivot into the part where we talk about what 
the collection accomplishes. What actually happens when we gather funds together as a congregation? And the first thing that happens is the collection preaches the gospel. When we give, we preach the gospel. Right? Because when we come here and we give in the gathering because we know it's what God wants us to do. How do we know it's what God wants us to do? It's because he told us and also because that's what God himself does. God gives. Right? Paul, when he's talking to the Corinthians, he says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. He's challenging them to make good on the pledges they offered. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus set an example for us, and it is because we're following his example that we give. I'm currently reading through a book. I'm, uh, this, this fall, we're going to offer a Sunday school class on evangelism, and I'm reading this book on how the church spread and became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. And one of the reasons is because of their generosity and the fact that for them, it was part of their duty to God to give to others. Because none of the other religions were saying that. And so when they became the dominant religion, there was actually an emperor who tried to compete and, and got really mad because he couldn't get any of the pagans to do the same thing. He, got, he wrote a really funny letter where he gets mad because the Christians weren't only just taking care of their own poor, they had the gall to take care of the pagan poor too because the pagans weren't doing the same thing because for them it wasn't a duty, it wasn't something that God wanted them to, their gods wanted them to do. It wasn't part of the character of their God. So when we give because it reflects the character of God, we preach the message of who God is. So as we give in the gathering, we're preaching the gospel, but then the gospel is preached again when those gifts are received because of the impact that it has on the people who who realize they're being given to because of God's generosity. Paul says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The people who receive it will give thanks to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. So one th- you give the money, and one thing, it'll relieve the poverty, it'll relieve the struggle of the people that we're helping, but also they'll recognize that it's done in God's name, and they'll give thanks to him for his generosity, which means that people receive that material support and that, that material uh, help as the generosity of God himself. And the gospel is preached. The second thing that happens when we give is that the collection makes us partners in the work we support. So, the um, Philippian Christian Church, they support Paul as one of their missionaries. And Paul says, it was good for you to share in my troubles, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Most churches have not been supporting Paul, but the Philippians have been diligent in supporting Paul. And Paul has this interesting way of talking about the Philippians. He talks about them as his partners. He says, it was good of you to share in my troubles. How did he share in their troubles? Or how did, sorry, how did they share in his troubles? That they took on some of the financial burden for him. 
Right? They lost some money by giving it to him. Their bank accounts went down so that his could go up enough to buy his food and his bedding and things like that. Right? So they're sharing in his troubles. But they're also, if you track through the book, he, they are his partners in the gospel, according to chapter 1, verse 5. They're not just sharing in his suffering, but they're also, they now are partners in the work that he's been doing in, uh, in jail, which includes the fact that he's starting to convert members of the emperor's guard and like slaves that work in the emperor's family, in the household. Later on, he says, all of you share in God's grace with me. That as God looks kindly on the work that's being done, it's not just on Paul. It's not just to Paul's credit, but it's to the credit of the church in Philippi. So, biblically speaking, we genuinely do share in the ministries that we support. That means that as you give, if and when you give to the, this congregation, you are doing ministry in Kenya. You are doing ministry in England. You're doing ministry in the Ukraine. You're doing ministry in the Northwest. You're doing ministry in Marion County. You're doing ministry in Cascade School District. And you're doing ministry in a lot of different ways in Turner. Now, what I don't want you to hear is, oh, well, I gave my money to the offering, so I don't need to do any ministry in my own life. I don't need to do any hands. That's not how it works. But... Those are, what I just listed are the different places in which this, this church is financially invested in doing ministry, and I probably forgot a few. There's a lot going on. And as you give to the congregation, you are a part of that ministry being done. Did you know that you'd done ministry in Kenya? Did you know that you'd done ministry in England even though you've never been there? You know, when those uh, Operation Christmas Child boxes go who knows where all over the world, Biblically speaking, as we participate in those, we are taking a real role in those ministries, and that's important. It's important that we are invested in ministry on all of those different levels. It's important that we're invested in ministry here in Turner. It's important that we're invested in ministry around our region and with partner churches, and it is important that we are invested in ministry around the world. And the primary way we do that is through giving. The last, thing, the last thing that we see in Scripture, uh, the power of the collection. This is, this is where Paul is a little bit sneaky. The collection builds unity in the church. If you know me, you know eventually I was going to find a way to work it back to unity in the church. <laughs> but this is, this is seriously a major, this is a major priority for Paul. We call Paul the, the apostle to the Gentiles. We call him the apostle of grace. We, I think one of the things we should call him is the apostle of unity because he cared deeply, not just about bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, but making sure that he wasn't creating a separate Gentile church in the process. He cared deeply about ensuring that there was one church that was united in love and in obedience to Jesus. And he knew that as he went out uh, and founded these churches that were mainly Gentiles and, and uh, Hellenists, uh, Jews who didn't keep the law, uh, hadn't been keeping the law, and, and these churches, and especially in very prosperous parts of Asia. And then the original, the first church in Jerusalem, they're going through a time of poverty. That creates a recipe for a split. 
for division for the wealthy churches to say, eh, well, forget you, you're a drag, we're going to move on. You know, the Jews are the old people of God, now we're here to make this look good, and we're going to go do our own thing. Or for the Jews to resent the wealthy Gentiles who got in on a technicality but clearly aren't acting like Jesus at all and, and you know, don't know what they're doing. And it was just rife with potential for a split. And that collection that Paul was taking was a key part of his plan to keep the church together. And you can see this in the way he talks about it. So he talks to the Romans about this collection, and he says, Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material blessings. This is what Paul had been telling the Gentile Christians. Hey, they are your spiritual brothers and sisters. Their ancestors are your spiritual forefathers and foremothers. You are standing on their shoulders. And so if you have gained all these spiritual blessings from the long millennia of the Jews following God and of the Jewish church now, then you owe it to share with them your material blessings. And he made them put money on that, right? He pushed them to put money on that idea. Because here's the thing, money is the hardest way to lie. If you put money on something, it generally means that you mean it, right? So he got them to put money on it to show that they really cared, to show that they knew they owed a debt. They didn't owe a, a monetary debt to the Jews, but they use the monetary gift to recognize the spiritual debt they owed to the Jews. So in getting the Gentiles to invest, reminded them of that. And then on the other end, when Paul talks to the Corinthians about how their gift is going to be received by the Jews in Jerusalem, he says, because of the service by which you approved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What does Paul expect to happen when the Jewish believers in Jerusalem who are suffering in poverty, all of a sudden, out of seeming nowhere, get this huge support, this gift of support from the Gentile Christians that they're not even sure are real Christians? What does it reveal about the heart of the Gentiles? Where is God sending them relief from? Because they're going to receive it as God's generosity, and it's coming from those Gentile Christians that, that we're not sure are, are obeying God in quite the right ways. And it demonstrates that those Gentile Christians have been shaped by the love and generosity of God. And that God is using them to do his work. And through maybe sometimes through gritted teeth, they have to thank God for what he did through the Gentile Christians. That sharing of funds, that putting of money on the words that we say about being brothers and sisters, that has extreme power. And so money has the power. I would say in our, in our modern day, we can apply that two ways. As we have opportunities to monetarily support other Christians, maybe even Christians that we wouldn't want necessarily want to worship with, or especially that wouldn't want to worship with us, like we're... You know, as we have those barriers that's really struggle, really hard for us to get over about the way they do things or the way we do things, as we are generous, that can 
really sh- that can really melt those barriers and, and really create unity. Also, as we are willing to give to non-believers across the barriers that divide our society, that people don't typically cross, it gives us the opportunity to build churches that cross lines. Unfortunately, too often our churches reflect the divisions in society. And so if society is divided into this kind of people and this kind of people, then we have a church over here and a church over here. You know, we have, the, we have the black church in town and the white church in town, or we have the liberal church in town and the conservative church in town, or the rich church in town and the poor church in town. I've heard stories from families who were part of denominations where each town would have the rich church, the middle church, and the poor church, and when your income got a certain level, you could jump up to the next church. Well, and, and also, one of the big things that happened in the South, churches, you know, the, the, the white Christians knew that they were supposed to love everybody, but they really didn't want to go to church with, um, with the African Americans in their town. So their generosity meant that they collected funds to build them a separate church so they could worship on their own. And they would even pay the salary of the pastor, not because they needed two pastors, but because that way the African Americans wouldn't come worship in their church. That's not the generosity that creates unity. But the fact is that how we invest our money and how we use our funds and how we use our resources can have a profound effect on our culture as we bring churches together and as we bring people into our churches that society says don't worship together. That was what made the church in the Roman Empire powerful, was that they brought together people who normally didn't talk, normally didn't see each other, normally certainly didn't love each other. And they they were united in the name of Jesus. As we close, I want you to take away, I want you to have three takeaways from this. This is the delicate balance to find when you talk about New Testament giving. On the one hand, I want you to remember that the collection is not a tax. It is an opportunity to love and share with each other. Tithing is an Old Testament principle, which means that it is a very good guide. It is incredibly helpful. It is not a law. So Paul says, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So there isn't a rule, there isn't a line that you have to meet. The goal is to be generous. Okay? In the ways you can be generous. So it's not a tax. And I want to remove any pressure that you may feel that it is a tax. But I don't want you to hear then that it's, oh, it's extra credit. You know, it's, it's, an, it's a thing that you just do. You know, if you feel like it, maybe God's given you the spiritual gift of generosity. Maybe he's given you wealth, but you don't ha- it doesn't come naturally to give away, so you don't need to do that. You can give in other, you know, I don't want us to think that it doesn't, the giving doesn't matter just because it's not compulsory. There are a lot of things in this life that matter, but God hasn't given us strict lines, and loving each other is a very important rule that doesn't have a line, right? So giving, the collection is also not extra credit. It is the reason God gives us wealth in the first place, or one of the reasons God gives us wealth in the first place, is so that we can share our resources as a church, and those resources can be invested in the mission of the church, in helping people in our community, helping those with need, helping, helping people in our congregation who have needs. And as we do that, God uses our collection to change the world. 
Now, I've said this about most of the things we've talked about in this series, that God uses communion to change the world. He uses singing to change the world. He uses confession to change the world. This is the one that is easiest to put a dollar amount, or to put to, this is the one that's easiest to prove. You know that to this day, churches routinely outgive the federal government in disaster relief. When Hurricane Katrina hit, churches gave more to relief than the federal government did. There was a time when governments didn't offer welfare or disaster relief, and it was all done by the church. Uh, in the last hundred years, the, the gov- governments have taken on more of that, and yet the church still routinely outgives. And as I've been reading this book on the, the growth of the early church, he talks about the things that Christians did that caused this profound growth. And top two, number one is they had non-Christian friends. That's the most important thing you can do to grow the, to, to spread the gospel is to have non-Christian friends. But number two was the fact that they were generous. It was the fact that they loved others, uh, they loved each other within the church, and they loved others in their community, and they showed that love through material investment and through time investment. You can personally be transformed by the practice of generosity. This congregation can be transformed by the fact that we share funds together. Not just by the fact that some of us receive those funds, but by the fact that we are a community that gives together. That practice can change us. And finally, our community and the whole world can be transformed by the effects of that giving. By seeing that we give and that we have a reason for that giving, and by the impact of those gifts as God uses them to change the world. So giving is an opportunity for us to participate in the building of the kingdom of God. And ask the praise team to come up, and I'm going to ask you, as we prepare to sing this final song, to be open to whatever God is saying to you right now. We believe that whenever the gospel is preached, whenever God's word is opened, we have an opportunity to hear from him. And as we are attentive, God could be saying a lot of different things to you. I don't want you to think that this is me saying, hey, God's telling you to up how much you give or anything like that. Personally, it's very important to me that I have no idea how, many, how much any one of you gives. I never want to know anything like that. When people give me money to put in every once in a while, haven't, it burns my fingers. I want to get rid of it so fast. I don't, I don't know. I don't care what you're giving. Okay? Uh, but God is speaking to you about something. Maybe the, the first thing he's calling you to give right now is your life because you haven't given him your life yet. You haven't committed to being a part of his kingdom and giving everything you have to him. Today is the best day to do that, and I promise that God asks for you to give him everything, but you receive so much back in return, so much more as you make that commitment. Maybe God is calling you to make some other commitment that's on your heart. Maybe you need to be a part of a, a group that helps to, to learn these principles and helps to, to learn more about what God calls us to do. That's what we have small groups and our service teams for. Service teams are a great way to give back. If you don't have surplus wealth to give or if you want to be able to give more than your bank account can support, service teams are a great way to give to, give to our community and to our church. You can sign up for either our small groups or our service teams on the Connect card. And finally, if you want to be a part of a church family that is seeking to share together and to build God's kingdom in this community and participate in the building of God's kingdom around the world, that is who we are seeking to be. If you'd like to um, find out more, you can sign up for our Connect class on your Connect card, and we'll put together a meeting where we talk about who we are, what we do, and how you can be a part of it.
I encourage you to consider what God is placing on your heart now as we stand and sing our